From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you to the Friday edition of Open Line here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. And because it is Friday, we bring you our Friday host, uh, everybody's favorite theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good, Tom. Back from your vacation, right? Well, it was a brief weekend vacation. A, a, a getaway. To, a getaway to break, break, uh, beat the spring break rush. Oh, and there is a rush, too. All the beaches of Florida and Alabama, you, you're going to expect it, so... Well, we are glad that you're back with us and uh, to answer questions from our listeners uh, all over the world. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question of a theological bent for Colin Donovan, and that's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code, which is 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put in the subject line either Friday or Colin or Theology to make sure that we get uh, the best you know, the best person to answer your question. We're going to get to some of those emails in a moment here, but we have a big day coming up tomorrow, right? We do. We have the Feast of the Annunciation, uh, which is a tremendous feast in uh, the order of history. Um, we, you might say that there might be three great dates, or four, actually, you could count on in, in history, and that is the creation of the world at the beginning of time, mm-hmm. uh, the consummation of the world at the end of time, and the incarnation that uh, all, and the incarnation and all that came as a consequence of the incarnation, and that is, of course, uh, the redemption, which we will celebrate in a few weeks, yes. just a couple weeks. So it, it's, a, it's a wonderful feast, and I think it's one, um, you know, if you're looking for a basis for what the Church's honor and respect and veneration of the Blessed Virgin Mary is, it goes back to that feast, because God is in eternity. He doesn't think serially as we do. He doesn't really think at all in terms of the way we would conceive of that, but in an eternal moment— all of history and all human beings who have ever lived and all all the actions within history that he would do are seen. And so from all eternity, the incarnation was determined. And that means from all eternity, the mother who would be the source of the human nature of the word made flesh was determined. And so this feast is very important for understanding uh, the titles and the prerogatives which the Church gives to the Blessed Mother, because it's the foundational feast of all of those things. And it's interesting that um, this is not directly related to this feast. We celebrate on January 1st, Mary is the Mother of God. When When the Council of Ephesus in 431 was defending the union of the divine and human natures in the person of the second person of the Trinity, it thought it necessary to 
define and to state and teach other also that Mary was the Theotokos, the God-bearer, or we would say in English, the mother of God. Mm -hmm. To indicate that these two natures, the human nature, eternal, divine, or the divine nature, eternal and divine, the human Mm -hmm. nature, temporal, both of these are united in, in God, in the second person of the Trinity. It's a personal union, a hypostatic union is what it was called. And of course, Our Lady gave birth to a person. We call him Jesus Christ in historical affairs, but he was the Son of God. She didn't give birth simply to a person, any person, or a human person even, Mm -hmm. because the Church rejects the idea that there was in Christ Mm -hmm. divine person and human person. No, he was a divine person with two natures. Therefore, she was the mother of a divine person, mother of God. And in saying that, of course, it says that with the nuance that anyone with common sense would understand. She's not the mother of the divine nature. She's mother of a person who assumed human nature. Sure. But she is definitely the mother of that person, the second person of the Trinity, who from the Incarnation is called Jesus Christ. So it, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing uh, to consider. And every other thing the Church says in her writings or in the honors that it gives to her is based on that principle and falls from that. And, of course, you can dive deeply into what the angels said to Our Lady, full of grace, uh, the fullness of the perfection of charity in her and what that implications are. You can look at what the Church later would define the next uh, uh, doctrine to be formally defined was really the doctrine of the perpetual virginity, that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after giving birth to Christ. And you can relate that as necessary to the uh, this foundational doctrine of the motherhood of God and the incarnation. And you can carry on down the line all the way to our own day when Pius Twelfth, with the Assumption, uh, doc- dogma of the Assumption, declared what was already contained initially in in what we know from Scripture and Mm -hmm. what the fathers taught about Mary, and that is that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. As, as a sense, our representative, because there she will, she awaits the rest of us arriving body and soul. When we die, when we go to heaven, or we're purified in purgatory, we go to heaven, then, of course, we, the person, I, Colin, you, Tom, we'll be in heaven. But we won't be fully human in a sense of the nature of human beings until the general resurrection when we will be reunited to our bodies. Uh, and so Mary already has that honor so that the redemption which Christ won is and applied in Christ initially, obviously, and, and accomplished in the resurrection is also in her and that this mystery is summed up in both God who rose from the dead and the creature who was assumed into heaven by the power of that God. And so all of these things draw back to this foundational teaching that that God became man in a woman who was known by him from all eternity and who was disposed with the graces which were necessary to fulfill her vocation as the mother of God. Uh, and indeed, 
Uh, indeed, she was. And the other beautiful aspect of this, it's not on the it's not on the current calendar, and I love the current calendar. I don't want anyone to get me wrong on that. <laughs> they move saints back into their rightful places where they were piled up on feast days of other people, and now they have the day they were died and things like that. So there's a nice uh, uh, clearing and clarification of the calendar. But one thing which is, uh, from my point of view, a little bit regrettable is they threw all the known archangels— Michael, Gabriel, yes. and Raphael, yes. all together on on September 29th. Uh-huh. On the old calendar, and we're still free to, to, to honor Gabriel on this day, this is the day which was his feast day, because uh-huh. obviously he is the one who appeared to Our Lady. Sure. And he is possibly the one who appeared at Fatima as well as the angel that went... Before uh, before her arrival, uh, that's something we don't know with certainty, but that's been conjectured. But anyway, when we're thinking of the of the seven archangels, as the church affirms there are in um, various churches which uh, allude to them, and the three known archangels for Gabriel, today is that day. Yeah, uh, and we can honor him again on the 29th of September when he and Michael and Raphael. And in pectore almost, <laughs> all the other four, the four that are not named and that the church doesn't want us to name and attach names to are also honored on that date. So we leave it at that. A very timely question here just popped up from Michael watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Michael says, why isn't the Annunciation a holy day of obligation? There are a number of people who have been uh, trying to bring that about, and maybe it will come about uh, someday. Um, it's, we, a lot of things that are great and tremendously important feast days are not necessarily holy days of obligation. St. Joseph just is also closely allied with solemnity, as is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So the church gets there uh, when she feels the need. I know that a lot of people attach a great pro-life significance to the celebration of the Annunciation yes. as well, and that's important to do that, I think. Uh, but so far, the Church has not, has not seen fit to make that into a holy day of obligation. Uh, and Our Lady, of course, this is a feast day of Our Lady of Our Lord in its own way, because mm-hmm. the Annunciation and the Incarnation. Um, but uh, we already have the Mother of God, we already have the Immaculate Conception, uh, we have the Assumption. Uh, so um, she is honored fully by the church. Sure. But that's a possible, and we'll see what, what uh, time and church authority will decide. As we say in the media, stay tuned. Exactly. All right. In a moment here, we're going to get to the phones, and you can uh, ask your question of Colin Donovan today here on EWTN's Open Line Friday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Be sure to stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. And lines are open for you right now to uh, speak with Colin Donovan. Uh, Something on your mind, perhaps, about the teachings of the Catholic faith? We would love to get to your question at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. 
888-288-3986. We'll go to the phones in just a second here. Let me tell you about a beautiful, wonderful movie now available from EWTN's religious catalog, and that is the DVD of the movie Romero. Actor Raul Julia gives a powerful performance in a compelling and deeply moving look at the life of Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. This movie chronicles the transformation of Romero from an apolitical, complacent priest to a very committed leader of the Salvadoran people. And because he was a vocal critic of the violent activities of El Salvador's civil conflict, Well, I'm sorry to say he made the ultimate sacrifice when he was assassinated on this day in 1980 while saying Mass. This movie's rated PG-13 because of mature thematic elements may not be suitable for younger audiences. It was filmed in Spanish and has optional English subtitles. Did you see this movie? I I bet you did. No, I have not seen it, but I remember uh, when his cause uh, was progressing through. Yeah. that there was an article that uh, I was given. Uh, he apparently went to Opus Dei for much of his spiritual direction, uh-huh. and he sometimes is being sometimes being painted by certain forces in the church as liberal or conservative, one way or the other. When all he was was a very faithful priest yeah. who paid the ultimate sacrifice. And sadly to say, the bishop in Nicaragua today, of course, this is a neighboring country. Mm-hmm is you know going to prison for 22 years for basically being a catholic bishop yeah. doing his job teaching yeah. the faith yeah so i the the bishops know uh that this is the this is the potential price i think all priests and all catholics certainly mm-hmm. should be aware that this is a potential price for fidelity to the gospel in all of its aspects the doctrinal aspects the moral aspects uh including the social teaching uh, and so he paid that price and is is honored by the church for it. Yes, indeed. So check out the movie. It's called Romero. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Mary in Warren, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hello, Mary. Happy Friday. What's on your mind today? Hello. Uh, mine's about confession. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just wondering, is it okay not to say the actual contrition after you've said your um, sins? Because I've always said the act of contrition, but I go to a priest that says you don't have to. You can say it any time. You can say it after you leave the confession. Um, and I take my little granddaughter, and mm-hmm. she... You know, so the, she just made her first communion, mm-hmm. and I want her to say her act of contrition. So I always remind him that I say it, but he always says, you don't have to. And right. Is, is it right? To, you know, usually when you say your sins, and they, they say, and now make a good act of contrition. Right. That I probably shouldn't say all I want to say about that pastoral practice. Could there be a necessity like there are a hundred people in line waiting to go. And the priest says, I will give you, you can complete your act of contrition. 
Yes, there is a unity between the acts connected with it. You say you're exam- you do your examination of conscience before you go into the confessional. You you say your sins, as, uh, your, at least your grave sins in number and in kind in the confessional. Manifest the fact you're there manifests your sorrow, but the act of contrition does that in a particular uh, particular way, and so generally it is uh, it is you say it in there. I can see by some necessity, but I think as a normal practice, I think it's a very questionable pastoral practice. Thank you. I better leave it at that. Thank you for your circumspect answer. Honestly, excellent, Uh, Mary. Thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Barb now, a first-time caller in Minneapolis, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Barb. What's on your mind today? Hi. So I wonder, you know, when Herod Antipas built the second temple, rebuilt the second temple, Mm -hmm. why did he do that if he was a Jew? Jewish, I mean, if he was a Roman, so he's a Roman leader, and he's building this fabulous mm-hmm. temple for the Jews. So I wonder yeah. why he would do that. Well, no, and, and he was he was uh, he was the king simply by virtue of uh, Tiberius and uh, Augustus, and so that's where his authority came from. He himself was an Idumean, which is one of the. Uh, Palestinian or Arab peoples uh, around Israel. Uh, he ostensibly practiced the Jewish faith, although I think it's quite clear that that was by necessity among the people there. I can't speak to. I think if you if you look at his acts and the and the the way he treated people, you can't say he was a very good Jew. Uh, in terms of his practice, clearly John the Baptist didn't think so, and he called him on it, which would made no sense, I guess, if he didn't have at least a, a nod and a wave of the hand towards the Jewish practice. So I think he did it to flatter his populace, uh, the leaders of Israel, to maintain them in their, uh, maintain him. Um, and so in that sense, he felt it was important to do I don't know that he did it from any sincerity. Maybe there was originally a sincere intention, and maybe his heart was corrupted over time. Uh, so it's it's hard to get deal into people's motives. We only know how he behaved. Yeah. We know that he did it, and he built a second temple on where it was to be built, on the top of Temple Mount, uh, and furnished it. And, of course, that process went on for many decades, uh, as construction jobs often did in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why. So as to his motives, I suspect that they were largely political uh, and that his profession of the Jewish faith was, you know, useful. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Is that helpful for you, Barb? Yeah, I thought he was Roman. I don't know why I thought that. Well, he was educated in Rome, and he was a childhood friend of Tiberius, as ah, I recall. Okay, uh, or Octavian, one of the one of the one of the Caesars. Appreciate your call there, Barb. It's uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. We have a couple of lines open for you right now at eight three three. 
288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Nathan watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Uh, Does the church expect us to maintain our Lenten fasts on the Feast of the Annunciation? Well, there's no hard and fast rule, actually. This is your own choice of a penance. Uh Uh, Now, obviously, the next fast, per se, is on Good Friday. Sure. So if you use fasting in the general sense of, well, I gave up candy or alcohol or whatever for Lent, uh, then a solemnity is a good day not to do that. In fact, if if the Feast of the Annunciation were on today, the church herself would excuse you by the canon law. Mm. And interestingly, you may remember back to last week, Nathan, that when the uh, a number of bishops in the United States, for the benefit of their Irish descent population, gave them the pass on for the Feast of St. Patrick. Yep. Even though, although it's a solemnity in Ireland, it's not a solemnity in the United States, obviously. So that was within the canonical authority of a bishop in his own see. Uh, but universally, the Code of Canon Law would exempt it on if the feast day had fallen today. So I think maybe that's a good indication of the spirit of the law. But ultimately, I think giving up your Lenten stuff, whether your Lenten commitments you've made, whether mm-hmm. it's on Sundays of Lent or whether it's on tomorrow on a solemnity, uh, that ultimately uh, will be up to you. And a lot of people do. And I like the logic which a local priest gave recently, and that is that the church has feasting and fasting. And when she tells you to fast, you should fast. But maybe when she tells you to feast, you should look at it as an opportunity of celebration. Not a bad logic. Sounds good to me. Appreciate your uh, question via YouTube, Nathan. Here's uh, an email from Carrie who says, uh, fascinating here, is cussing in church a mortal sin? Basically, two weeks ago, we were at the right of election. A person sitting next to my children were told to be quiet after they were heard cussing. Then it got worse. They are in RCIA to get their first communion. I am in RCIA to get baptized, confirmation, and first communion. I am new to the Catholic faith. I would like to answer my children's questions. Is it a mortal sin or even a grave sin or even a venial sin after they were made aware of their actions? Well, a number of things play into that. They, you don't tell us what cussing is uh, in the question. Now, there's the taking the name of God in vain. Then there are the common words for certain bodily functions which people use uh, and have used historically, and most of them derive from some version of Middle English uh, that gets uh, perpetuated into modern English and used. Uh, that, is, that is very poor taste, but I think circumstantially it might be sinful, but it, it's not per se sinful. Hmm. You know, if you use some of those words, I think most people would say, you know, you're not on a ship with 25 other guys. Could you not yeah. use those words like that in the presence of our children, for example? Now, you mentioned the children were actually <laughs> cussing. Yikes. <laughs> well, <laughs> that raises a lot of questions, but uh, it does. I'm glad you're all coming into the church. Uh, now, if you're taking the, Lord, the name of the uh, Lord in vain, then there you've got more serious matter. But even when there is that usage, that violation of the commandment, uh-huh. did you intend it? 
a lot of times people do that, especially people who are habituated to do it. They they just do it and then they regret doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So right there, it's not a mortal sin. The circumstances of being in the church, not the place to do that, yes, but again, force of habit and lack of attention to what you're doing sometimes can bring that about. So it would probably not even be mortal sin in the case of taking the Lord's name in vain, although objectively you ought Mm -hmm. not to do it, and it could be mortal sin uh, if you did it with full knowledge and intention Mm -hmm. maybe to disrupt a sacred function, something like that. I don't think that was the case. No, here. I'm sure not. But uh, why take the chance? Why even you know do that? So if you, you know, and I'm an old military guy too, so I got into some bad habits, yes. and uh, I just had to say this is not how I'm going to talk. And that was many years ago, and I'm glad that I don't talk that way. And you have, to, as I've been learning, you have to teach those habits to your kids because they're little monkeys, and they'll just repeat what you say. Better believe it. So, so good, there you give go. a good example. Great question. Thanks so much for it. Lots more straight ahead on Open Line Friday, 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Do stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Something to be aware of if you're listening to us (coughs) in uh, Kepner, Texas. Next week, Armor of God Radio in Kepner, Texas, airing their Spring Pledge Drive. Also, Domestic Church Media in New Jersey, airing their Spring Radiothon on their four New Jersey radio stations. Hey, no matter where you're listening, please support your Catholic radio station. It's uh, Open Line Friday on EWTN with Colin Donovan here to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 288-3986. We'll get back to the phones in a second here. A question from Marie. How is it best explained to young adult Catholics why our Sunday obligation is so very important when other denominations aren't required to attend Sunday services? I just don't know the right words to say or how to best explain this to them. Mm-hmm. They wonder if non-Catholics are going to hell since they don't participate in weekly services. Well, I know the answer is probably simple and easy, but I do need help explaining the why we are so special, so called, and so different. Yeah. Thank you so much. God bless you, Marie. Well, the the answer is a fairly logical one. Uh, Christ gave the apostles authority the apostles left it with the bishops they appointed. We can think of the biblical example of Timothy and Titus, whom Paul appointed uh, to different sees. This was universal in the ancient world. Uh, you know, Thomas going off to India, those who went to Armenia and Iran and Persia and uh, I- Italy and France and other places, mm-hmm. Spain, uh, established uh, churches there, and they did that by appointing an overseer, a bishop, Mm-hmm. which is simply Episcopoi come down to us in, through, through in, 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 into English. Uh, and the bishops associated with them presbyters, priests, uh, to assist them in their ministry. And they had deacons who would help them in the administration of their diocese. So you have this long history perpetuated. Now, in giving authority to the bishops, it was a plenary authority, which means sweeping authority. Christ mentions at the Ascension, I gave, you know, all power in heaven and earth I gave to you. And then he turns and says, go forth, teach, baptize, and lo, I'll be with you till the end of the world. He imparts his authority. It has to be right authority. It has to be, you know, the proper use of that authority, but he imparts it 
to the church. And so the church you exercise an authority which is theirs. Uh, this can't be said of other churches, fo- churches founded by human beings in the 1500s or 1600s or 1700s or 1800s or 1900s or in 2000s. Uh, you, can't, you can't say that. There is no connection to the apostolic authority of the apostles, which was given them directly by Christ. So it's Christ's own authority. And it's on the basis of that authority that the third commandment to honor the Sabbath, and the Christian Sabbath is the day of the resurrection, the new creation, as opposed to the Jewish celebration of creation on the sixth day. So this is the distinction there. So for the Christian Sabbath, the church specifies that the way we honor the redemption is to celebrate it liturgically. Does that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Sure, sure. And the Mass is the way that the sacrifice of Calvary is represented under sacramental forms so that Christ in every time and place, as the prophet Malachi foresaw that, foresaw that from the rising of the sun to the setting everywhere, there will be a perfect offering to God, and that offering is the offering of Christ. And the, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy is that representation in all times and places as the church has done from the first century down to our day. So this celebration of the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ in the Mass mm-hmm. and receiving of communion, if you're well disposed to do so, is the way that we fulfill the third commandment. No other church has the authority to do that. Now, in the Eastern churches, they're coming out of the first millennium. They have apostolic authority. And so they're doing what all such churches did. Uh, The Roman church, of course, considers, because we have the presence of the successor of Peter, that this is, uh, you know, the church with which other churches must be in communion and were for the first millennium. And we Mm -hmm. hope that that will be restored. So, the Eastern churches and the Western churches all have an expectation, the Catholic Church, an expectation that Sunday will be celebrated this way. But it's a human rule, and Christ said the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And so sickness, weather, circumstances that prevent it, you know, such as your employer, there are all kinds of reasons we can't we we can't get to mass on sunday yeah. and those are unobjectionable sitting on the couch and watching the nfl and that's what you'd prefer to that's not that's objectionable yeah so i think what you the, the way to impress it on children is that if we remember what was accomplished for us uh we would be we would be grateful to go to mass on sunday and I think it may have been Scott Hahn, and maybe you'll remember this, who said, you know, if you were about to step off a curb and uh, somebody grabbed you by the britches and pulled you back and you would have been hit by a bus and you're, oh, I'm so grateful. What, what can I do for you? Will you come here every, every, to this corner every Sunday and remember and say a prayer? We say, oh, yes, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Well, we're remembering every Sunday what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, and we're giving thanksgiving to God, which is what Eucharistia means. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving to God for 
that event, that grace, and the graces we still benefit from in the seven sacraments, in the teaching of the church, and you know, in the communion which exists among over 1.3 billion Catholics on this planet. So that's why we do it. I can't speak for other denominations who may not have such a requirement. Yeah. I would argue, well, they don't have the, th- the authority to bind people to do that. Mm-hmm. The church has the authority to do that, however, and she does, barring the kinds of things which humanly happen that prevent it. Marie, great question. Thanks so much for checking in uh, via email. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Back to the phones now. Let's talk with Chris in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've been struggling with my husband and I live in a small town, and mm-hmm. it's predominantly Catholic, and our children are ra- were raised Catholic, and they're... Um, went to Catholic grade school. When it came time to high school, my husband and I are both public school advocates. We're, he's, um, we both teach in the public school. Mm-hmm. And it's become very divided. Um, my husband, there have been a lot of things that happened, but from the pulpit, we were told that your duty as a Catholic parent is to send your children to a Catholic school. Well, we did that first five years. They were confirmed, and it, since then, our children have grown, and my husband is so, so done. Mm-hmm. So done being in the church with the people that don't reciprocate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, how can I support my husband? He hasn't been to church for two years. That's starting to weigh on me a sure. great deal. Yeah. So how can I support him and his struggle and still maintain my faith, because I've always had his support. Well, I would hope your faith isn't—I would hope your faith isn't dependent upon what Father X or parishioners A, B, and C say. Your faith is dependent on what God has revealed through Jesus Christ, in which the Church holds to be true. I, I would even argue that you were misadvised and mis instructed by the people in the parish, uh, and perhaps by the pastor. I, I won't judge him. He has a bishop. You can always ask the bishop about this. Uh, the problem with the Catholics, with the public schools today, of course, is the one that they are very woke, as the expression goes, and many of the things that are considered appropriate and proper to be taught will be morally dangerous for children to hear and so on. Um, you may, I, I mean, it's it's certainly possible that somebody teaching in a public school, uh, that that's the work they can find and do, are not participating in that in any way. So I think uh, universal condemnation uh, w- is wrongheaded. Uh, and I think probably it was the parish that should have been admonished and not your husband. Um that would be my first grasp, knowing none of the details or none of the personalities involved. I think it's something to go to take to higher authority. Uh, that you have been wounded by the church is ultimately the the bishop needs to know this. Yeah, yeah. Because he is he is actually your pastor. The priests are his assistants. He has given them a territory is properly theirs. Uh, but they do it in his name. 
He's the successor of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So if your husband's heart is wounded and yours is wounded by this circumstance, then I would think that's something to talk to him about. Uh, And canon law gives you that entitlement to bring not just these kinds of issues, but let's say you were teaching in a Catholic school and found that others were teaching false teachings and nobody was doing anything about it. Anything of that nature can rightfully be brought to the, the bishop and even potentially to the pope. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm <laughs> suggesting you bring this to the attention of he who is ultimately responsible for your diocese and the parishes in that diocese and see what he can do to ease the pain that's, that, you, that you feel. Yeah, yeah. Because in and of itself, as I explained, working in a public school, as many people do by necessity, uh, that's their training, that's not in itself, you know, there's nothing sinful about that. Now, it is what you teach and what you go along with that might be morally wrong. That's a different matter, and, and, and that's something that is addressed individually by the circumstances sure. of being demanded to, to do something against your own conscience. Uh, and, of course, you have First Amendment rights in a public school. <laughs> you would hope that they would be obeyed maybe, or respected um, in that respect. So in any case, I think with re- regard to the church, your bishop is probably the person to bring this matter to. Chris, is that helpful for you? All right. Yeah, yes and no, because our bishop is is part of the problem. And I hate saying that, because I've told my husband that, you know, we need to make more noise, Dave. We're not the only people that are feeling this way. Many of our co-workers have left the church because of our community and because of our pastor. Countless co-workers that were in church with us are now left the church and mm-hmm. gone to different denominations within our community, because our bishop requires our contribution to be 80 percent at school supported that's why our schools are are, how the schools are so affordable 80 percent of our contribution goes to the school we have no say about that whatsoever okay we cannot do any we can't even support our school our, our church without supporting the school Okay. Now you're talking about the Catholic school at this point. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, the where are the money? The whole idea of charity is you're giving it, and the person can then use it where they find it necessary. Uh, there is an element of justice in that. Is that, if, for instance, if you give money to a particular purpose, it should be used for that purpose. It's a very complicated kind of situation. It sounds like and. Um, um, I, I don't know what the ultimate solution is, but I definitely think if you haven't had that chat with the bishop, then it, it's one that you ought to have. We do appreciate your call, Chris. Thank you so much for it. It's uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. This weekend on Divine Intimacy Radio, that'll be Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. Eastern. Be sure to join Dan and Stephanie Burke. They'll continue their discussion with Father Matthew McDonald uh, all about the importance of community life 
and spiritual direction. Should be a great show. Divine Intimacy Radio with the Burks, and that'll be 6.30 a.m. Eastern on Sunday morning right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Sean in Atlanta, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Sean. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, so I've been reading on William Ockham. And mm-hmm. we started with him, and we're progressing to other people that followed after him and his view on nominalism. And that word keeps coming up now. I kind of understand that, you know, um, he didn't believe in potency before actuality, and I understand it before form. But it keeps coming up in wider implications. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm not understanding the wider use in the word and why it's so wrong. Yeah. Well, you have to see what the church was, what was being generally taught in that era. And we sometimes call it scholasticism or the perennial philosophy or realism or sometimes moderate realism because of Thomas, St. Thomas's contribution. And that is that ideas are derived from the, by the senses from real things so that they reflect the real things. The other idea is the Platonic idea or the idealist view that the ideas just, you know, just come in there, that these exist and they come in t- into the, you know, into the mind of the person. This was compatible in the early church with what, uh, say, uh, there was no awareness of realism of Aristotle and, and those writings, but there was of Plato. And that was conformable to the Christian idea of God as creator, and so the ideas come from God. We see according to, we know things according to those ideas which we receive, and that's how we know things. Aristotle was saying that from the senses, we have the faculty in our intellect to derive the essential nature of things and from this will come the concept of man, a tree, a book, a computer, whatever it is. But it's, a, it's the, the universal or the idea is real. Occam, as I understand it, denied that, that it was simply, again, it was simply a name we applied to it. And so it wasn't so much, I, I guess you would say, a matter of the faith so much as a denial of the direction of philosophy in that day, which depended upon the reality of things, that we can discern what they are. And that's a, it's an important concept, because although it's just, you think like philosophers sitting around and they're discussing and they're throwing out ideas and, you know, sort of uh, uh, just talking around different subjects, it's more it's more significant than that. Because the position of the church is that God created the things and that reality is ultimately, in some sense, a revelation of God. Think of St. Paul. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that everything came through him, and without him nothing that was made was made. So there is this stamp on on created reality that is the stamp of the word, as if God is imaging himself some way in the creation, in the same way that he would later 
in Jesus Christ, the Word becoming flesh. And so Aristotle and that realist view of where we get our sense of things was very important to defending the faith and defending the idea of God as the source of all truth. It doesn't just come into our minds as ideas. Uh, It's not simply a name that we apply to something, you know, as if I could call this chair here, which you can't see if you're listening through radio, but there's a chair here, if I could call that Tom, meaning that it's, you know, Tom Price, (laughs) or calling Tom a chair. No, it's not just an idea that we, a name that we put on things. So it's a very important concept, and I think you should continue your study to sort of get a grapple of these different approaches, the idealist, the nominalist, and the realist approaches, Mm -hmm. because the realist has been proven to be very significant and helpful for understanding created reality and even supernatural reality when we want to give an authentic concept of the thing, as in the case of the Eucharist. What took place in the Eucharist takes place in the Eucharist. And so we call that transubstantiation because it tells us that something real happened, that substance was changed, and that it's not just a symbol, symbol or it's not just an idea, a significance, or a meaning, as some modern theologians have tried to claim. Those are sort of current-day nominalist approaches. Now, the Church asserts the reality of a change there. So, uh, although it's about created things and the nature of being in nature, realism has been proven a great boon for the Church in explaining the doctrine of the faith, because we know real things. We're material creatures, and so we need to be able to understand things in our human mode, and the philosophy helps us to do that. Occam did not. And we, as we know, Plato had his limits. Yeah. And so now the church, since uh, uh, since Mag, uh, uh, Albert the Great and uh-huh. Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. and the other scholastics, uh, have a deeper insight into uh, into that truth. Appreciate your call there, Sean. Here is Neil, a first-time caller from New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Neil. What's on your mind today? Hello, sir. In uh our diocese, our diocesan paper that comes out every week, and there was an article up from about a council or, or, a, or a meeting of bishops or whatever, and they came out, and the statement was that they allowed people that were divorced to receive communion again, and that is my question: Is that I, you know, is there more to that or? It wasn't yeah. explained in the article. Did did they say anything about the German synod in no, the article? Sir. No, no. Okay. Well, that would be surprising because the place where that was being taught floated, <laughs> floated as an idea among many other ideas mm. was uh, in the recently concluded uh, German synodal path, and no. There can be many different ways. A general statement like that can really never be valid, you know, because twice married people may be people who were never validly married previously. Such cases exist. The purpose of the annulment process or the, is to determine whether uh, marriage was embraced in the, in the 
first marriage, the yeah. marriage recognized civilly and generally by people, was embraced with uh, motives which made it uh, a valid marriage. Uh, and so those are looked into, and the church says, no, this was not a valid marriage. Before the law, before the public, that person was seemingly married. And then maybe they went off and they married again, and they repeated their same nonsense. Um, and we're not even talking about people who are in the church. Maybe they did this all before they came to the church. Well, that would be me. Well, and, there you go. And when the uh, when the annulment process was finished, they very then in a very nicely nice way they said, "Oh, you were an idiot then, and and you don't <laughs> now you wised up. <laughs> you don't seem to be an idiot at this point. So uh, yeah, that's so right. And you better not ask for this again because now we got you on the record that you know what marriage is that's about right. and what you're vowing. That's right. You know so. A general statement like that is never going to be valid. There right. can be reasons why somebody who is ostensibly married twice. But if it's citing the German synodal way, I think it's not going to come to a happy yeah. ending over yeah. there with regard to this because uh, there are many things very, very and beyond questionable yeah. uh, in what was concluded here last Sunday, I believe it was, mm. in the German Sonata way. More to pray about. Yes. Uh, Neil, thanks so much for your call. Here's Jenny quickly in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Uh, Jenny, we have just about a minute. What's on your mind today? Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yes go right ahead. Okay, good. Uh, my question is about, uh, starting with the prayer, the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. With that in mind, could you elaborate and help me understand more fully um, the concept of Jesus Christ as person? So uh, my question specifically is, prior to the Incarnation, when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, did Jesus exist prior to that? And if so, you know, do we say... Do we refer to him as Jesus, or do we say the Christ or the Son of God? Okay. okay. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. Okay. The, the The Council of Ephesus, which I mentioned, 431, mm -hmm. uh, not inventing new doctrine, but affirming which had always been believed by the Church against certain heretical preachers who were teaching that, well, you know, Jesus was this or Jesus was that. They affirmed that the second person of the Trinity is what unites the divine and human natures. So it is hard to, hard to conceive and it is hard to say it, but yes, Jesus existed from all eternity and he became man, the Son of God from all eternity. He took the name Jesus when Joseph gave it to him at his circumcision. Yeah. So it's the same thing, the same person, but he took a human name according to the Jewish rite of circumcision at, his, uh, at, that, at that event. And that's what the angel told Joseph to do. Yeah, Jenny, I'm glad we could get you in uh, at the very last minute of the show. Colin Donovan, thank you and have a great weekend. Thank you, Tommy. You as well. Thank you. We hope everybody has a great weekend. Be sure to join us next week for another five days of Open Line right here on EWTN Radio. I'm Tom Price. Have that wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time. God bless. Mm -hmm.